3: it's the wonky show we discuss international strategy chat about cheating we speak about skills and we have a very different type of recruitment crisis it's all coming up
4: and all of a sudden then you you kind of get a bit of a sort of balloon effect don't you so i don't know if there's a sense of actually it will feel far more strenuous on the system than it might do otherwise because of you know kind of where where we might be up to with numbers currently um going through the system i don't know
3: to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to walk at pace through the busy streets of higher education policy. As usual, we have three great guests. In London, we have Kate Wicklow, policy manager at Guild HE. Kate, your highlight of the week, please.
2: So yesterday we hosted a practice-informed teaching conference with Advanced HE um, and we brought together staff from the, in the sector to discuss the positive ways in which technical skills can be an asset to the learning environment and that's really important for us at Guild HE because many of our members, their staff currently work in the industries that they also teach in um, and it's something that w- we need to highlight more widely to the sector. And in Sheffield we have
3: Robin Weber-Jones who's Vice Principal at the Sheffield College. Robin, give us your highlight of the week please.
4: Hello there, Um, so yesterday I went to the Office for Students uh, launch of the kind of revised access and participation plan guidance but the absolute highlight was uh, after lunch there were a group, of, uh, a group of students did a performance on their uh, experiences as black and minority ethnic students uh, entering into HE uh, within the UK and what that meant and what it felt like. And uh, it was a really, really poignant performance, actually, that kind of spoke volumes, I think, to everybody in the room.
3: And live from Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's Associate Editor, Minto Felix. Minto,
5: uh, if you would, your highlight of the week, please. Thanks, Rachel. It's a very close two-way split between hearing from Alison Wolf earlier in the week about um, the history of higher education policy, which is a second part of her three-part lecture series at King's College London, and doing a very, very uh, vibrant spin class with yourself, with your good yeah. self, which you yeah. know is something that we enjoy doing together.
3: Yeah, that was that was my highlight, and um, I feel slightly less worthy than everyone else's highlight. Um, that, that you know, it's just as uh, as flippant as a spin class. That's that's as good as the week gets. Uh, right let's crack on. Uh, this week, we kick off with the government's announcement of their international education strategy, global growth and prosperity. The policy paper sets out how government and the education sector will build on UK strengths to take advantage of global opportunities. So Minto, what's caught your eye in this international education
5: strategy document? So, Rachel, I think in being able to understand this document, we have to see it in the context of the conversation that the country's been having more broadly about immigration over the last few years. And, you know, the important thing about this document is that it strikes a refreshing different tone uh, from, for example, the 2010 net migration target that was set, which we know had an impact for international students because it sent a message to them that perhaps they weren't uh, welcome here. I think it's really interesting that the report also references an ambition uh, of 600 of increasing to 600,000 international students from the current 430,000 students rather than a target and, and I'll come back to why, why that's um, you know curious that it's an ambition not a target but despite the refreshing tone I think if we were to be a lot more serious if the government was to be a lot more serious about its commitment to international students then they would have gone further. I mean at the heart of this strategy it's about uh, mobility and frankly the report does not say enough or it does not go far enough about what we're doing to improve the immigration and visa conditions that will see um, more international students want to come to study in the UK, but also we know that international students want to work here beyond their study. So, the strategy does set out um, some previously announced... Um changes to immigration that will see masters taught students and undergraduate students be able to work six months beyond completion of their study. But really, uh, you know, this this needs to be a lot longer so that students actually have an incentive to stay and contribute to the UK. There are about 20 other actions in the report. Some of them are quite minor, some more major, um, but really at the heart of it, um, I think it it should have gone a lot further.
6: Um,
4: I I, I thought it was really interesting actually reading the report because one of the one of the things that we struggle with is that kind of part of the skills education ecosystem is recruiting teachers in STEM and things. So, you know, we know that we've got a kind of shortage of individuals entering STEM subjects in order to be able to do the infrastructure pro- projects, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera, that... Um, you know, are currently on running and in, in, in the pipeline and things. And actually, one of the things we really struggle with is recruiting teachers to teach people to get better at STEM and to inspire them to progress to degrees and postgraduate study and things. And you know one of the techniques really that the FEN skills sector has used before is to, to go to international students that have taught here and said well let's take your skills and see if we can turn you uh, into teachers but actually if the kind of visa conditions don't get better for those individuals then it becomes really problematic and not a very cost-effective way of, of doing things and I think there's a real opportunity there as part of a kind of just internationalizing the curriculum type agenda um, where actually some some really interesting work could happen and because of you know various visa issues and things it strikes me as a bit of a kind of missed opportunity really.
3: Kate your members are um, uh, small and specialist institutions Um, do you have a take on kind of on their behalf as it were on this uh, new education strategy?
2: Yes, I think, I mean, we welcome um, the sentiment of it. Um, but I think the problem is, is that it's not, there aren't any kind of tangible things that can be done right now without the Home Office kind of supporting the project, actually. Um, you know, we, we have issues around visas. We we already know that this report says that we can kind of extend the post-study work visa system. Well, that's great, but it's actually not for a, a very long time. Um, and also, I think, w- without removing student numbers out of net migration, there's no way that we're going to be able to recruit this many students 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 without the wider political issue around immigration and to come up, and the only way that that is possible is through extending our TNE provision, which you know many of our members don't have because they're small providers. Um, But also, it's really costly um, and also very high risk providers to do that. Um, And I don't think it's something that people should be getting into lightly, just because uh, we're being encouraged to export more H.E.
4: My kind of observations on uh, on these kind of reports is always um, that they do focus on economic impact. And it kind of misses a piece of social impact, really. And I think that kind of thing about net migration and migration numbers, you know, is it becomes kind of quite a binary debate. And I think in educational institutions, having more in- international students and having more international staff actually adds real, adds an element of social mobility that perhaps you can't define, but I think it's there and it's kind of, you know, you can touch it and it's there in atmosphere. And I, I do feel sometimes with these kind of reports that sometimes we miss. That bit of impact actually. Mm.
5: And I think related to that, too, Robin, is you know, you have the social mobility piece, the economic piece, but also this is uh, about lives, it's about human capital. And I think one of the gaps in the strategy, though, that it, it may be an export strategy. Is that we haven't spoken about the supports that international students require to be able to thrive? There is a reference to English language support and strengthening that um, aspect of uh, of their experience. But we know that a big concern for international students uh, when they're moving to another country to study is around safety. Is around feeling welcomed. It's around their mental health. And uh, you know, other countries, uh, competitors in this space, um, in places like Australia and the U.S., have been really successful. I think at capturing the hearts and minds of international students with that that kind of language that I think could have really been encouraged and reinforced through this strategy. I
2: agree. And I think the it's quite telling, actually, that some of the key issues going on um, at the moment in kind of the student experience world is around mental health support, well-being, student support for kind of the life provision that isn't just the academic stuff. Um, and I think if international students are reading UK newspapers, they're not going to see a very welcoming environment for them to come into.
3: Okay, dokie, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
6: My name is Professor Nora Colton, and I'm the Joint Director of Education at UCL's Institute of Ophthalmology and Morfield Eye Hospital. My piece is about what Brexit means to higher education's widening participation agenda. As we continue to see the possibility of leaving the EU debated in Parliament, it's essential for us to understand what this could mean for higher education. Brexit needs contextualized, not just in terms of the relationship with the EU as a funder for research and also a location for recruiting students and staff, but also in terms of our widening participation agenda and and the outcomes of our disadvantaged students who come from various backgrounds within society. Since 2000, financial crisis, which was really devastating, particularly in terms of youth and youth unemployment. We've seen the economy recover and and youth unemployment go down significantly in the UK. And as we've witnessed this, we've also seen an increase in university joiners from state-funded schools and colleges, and at a higher rate than even private-funded uh, schools. We've also seen a rise in black and Asian and other ethnic groups coming to university. So all this is really good, and and really good for the widening participation agenda that higher education is so committed to. However, lessons from the past teach us that economic uncertainty bears down on most all of those who are vulnerable in society. Although the situation for university participation and graduate outcomes looks promising currently, we also know that those from lower income backgrounds are often receiving the spillover effect of improvements that help those more fortunate first. So as we enter that final stretch towards a solution on what the Brexit deal might actually look like, UKHE must not only concern itself with how it was going to mitigate the impact on research and staff and students, but it's also got to look a lot closer to home.
3: Right, next up the news that the UK government has launched a series of measures, which it says will help beat the cheats at university. The launch is the first in a series of interventions on higher education being fronted out by Education Secretary Damien Hines. Kate, can you tell us more on this one, please?
2: Yeah, so um, this is an issue that's been bubbling away for a while and actually um, was the last part of the podcast last week. So some of you may be up up to date with what's going on. But basically. in 2016, QAA wrote a report to the sector kind of detailing um, the rise in these customer essay services being advertised in the UK um, and highlighted some of the key considerations for us and government to think about to crack down on some of those. Um, and then that kind of led to a report um, that government asked QAA together with us at GuildHE, U UK and NUS to develop Um, Some kind of further guidance for institutions to help identify where contract cheating had been used by students, um, and also to work with students to develop a better sense of academic integrity and to kind of discourage them from cheating. And that was published in August 17. So, again, this is, you know, quite a while ago now. And that led to the BBC running a big expose on the widespread advertising of these services. Um, And we then wrote to Damien Hines in September last year asking for action, um, especially in relation to setting legislation and working with the international community to tackle cheating. Um, And 45 vice chancellors signed that letter um, and we've been waiting kind of since for a government response formally. So this so this, I think, is is coming from that letter. Um, So we obviously welcome the interjection um, and he's called out big online players such as PayPal to stop processing payments for these services, which I think is going to be of great benefit. Um, And also Google and YouTube have committed to removing hundreds of the advertisements for essay writing services on their sites. But other social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram haven't acknowledged the issue yet. Um, and I, for one, have certainly seen adverts from these types of services on my Facebook feed in the last six months. So it's definitely something that's not going away. So, yeah, it's super interesting. Uh,
3: our colleague, uh, Jim Dickinson, has um, he would post things on Twitter um, about needing help with an essay. And it was incredible how quickly the bots got back to him offering the services. Robin, I'd be interested to hear your take on this um, as a, a principal of a college. Um, what is your view on the um, on beating the chip he says you, <laughs>
4: I mean, I think it's quite interesting. There's some elements in the, the report, there aren't there, where kind of Damien Hines, is, or he's almost kind of suggested um, a, a sort of US-type system where people kind of swear allegiance to kind of good behaviour and not doing this kind of thing, and etc. Uh, etc. Et which cetera, um, which I thought was interesting because then you kind of start comparing what induction um, and things like that begins to look like for students and how they find kind of belonging to their own institution. Um, one of the interesting things, I mean, in you know, college HE generally has much smaller Class sizes than you would find uh, in a higher education institution, um, and it's a kind of very different type of student body generally. And one of the things that we've done is a kind of a, an identity survey, if you like, with our our you know college HE population, just to I suppose get a sense of you know what their experience is like and how they react to some of these things. And it's it's quite interesting that they they basically kind of come back and say well we're in small groups we like being taught in small groups that's what we need and we feel as if we've kind of got great a great bond with each other so it's almost like this kind of notion of cheating would be frowned on within do, do you know what i mean we're, 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 yeah, within absolutely. a group because there's kind of less space to hide i guess
3: but interestingly that's not dissimilar to the honor code bizarrely um, is it they all uh, sign but, up to this pact of like i you know i <coughs> am alleg- allegiance with my institution my colleagues and such
4: yeah, well, exactly, and it's so. So it's kind of interesting that it does. It does sort of sit. down. I mean, I don't know this. I don't know how comfortable this on a code sits with me personally. Actually, it's a, but uh,
2: it's an odd one, isn't it? Because yeah. Yeah, we we do talk about academic integrity from the beginning. We've constantly had kind of sessions of induction around what plagiarism is and kind of forms of teaching and collusion, and we provide students with the academic regulations. So I think on one hand we're doing this. A little bit already. But on the other hand, I think Robin's right, in a very large institution, it's much easier to get lost in all the other students. So actually, this becomes um, quite an easy win for some students who are, you know, under considerable amounts of pressure often, both financially and academically, and they can kind of get away with it because their tutor doesn't know their voice.
5: <laughs> I think the other aspect is, I mean, whether it be honour codes or um, inductions, what we're fundamentally trying to do here is how do we stop students from cheating? And I mean, that's that's the problem and i think um all of these uh um, ideas our are, are interventions but you know the other things that we have to think about if the problem is about how do we stop students from cheating is asking the questions of do we have the right assessments in place I mean um, essays are but one method of assessment there's so much uh, in the way of classroom based assessment group projects uh, presentations and so many other techniques that you know we could be putting in place to prevent students from cheating That cheating or indeed considering what are the implications of an increasing workload um, so i think there are other levers that we can pull on to to have effect on that culture of, of students from cheating.
4: Well, I was going to say, I'd, I'd kind of fully agree with that. And also, I think there is um, uh, there were some students that I was kind of working with previously, and we did all that stuff in induction about plagiarism and assessment regulations and all the rest of it, um, you know, through induction. But of course, their first sort of summative assignment didn't come six to eight weeks later. And actually, lots of the feedback we were then getting was actually all of that stuff that you did at the start kind of needs to be repeated. <laughs> we need to go through again. We need to know where we need to go to to get help as people kind of transition through levels of learning um, and that kind of made us and made me think about whole sort of infrastructure that you can put in to kind of guide students through good academic practice and I don't know if you know as well as looking at assessment instruments actually looking at that whole bit of the student journey transitioning from level three and you know Uh, you know either an A-level or a B-tech type of study generally which is a very both of them have very particular ways of working into a kind of framework for higher education qualification type landscape which has you know kind of a very different philosophy around assessment practice I think.
2: But there is a kind of wider issue in that I I agree there's more that universities can do and also students can do to kind of take ownership of this but there are some legislative changes that can be made I mean other countries have banned this um, within their country so it means that these companies can't advertise anymore. Um, and because it's such a global issue, actually, we need that kind of legislation to underpin all of the practice that we're doing because it's it's all well and good us saying don't cheat. But if there's still wide access to these platforms, people are still going to be able to. Mm.
5: And the real tricky thing is when um, these companies, of course, infiltrate uh campuses physically, whether it be leaflet based advertising or through, uh, word of mouth. I mean, that's how they become what they, what they have been. So, you know, how do we really get into the, to the culture, uh, where, where these essay meals are really pervasive in, in the student body?
3: interestingly as Kate said we talked about this last week it was the last segment and uh, uh, Chris Shelley from the University of Greenwich spoke of uh, people being stood outside the libraries just like listening into people's conversations if they were struggling with certain things they would be um, you know they would be physically on campus uh, asking people who needed help with these uh, with these essays. Minto, if I may you are of course a colleague from um, Australia and you've worked in the Australian sector um, are essay mills prevalent in, in the Australian sector? Is there a culture of paying people to or companies rather trying to charge people for their services?
5: I think Rachel um, it, it probably is but um, we don't have the level of um, uh, I think public awareness about it uh, as, as perhaps is the case in in the UK and and the US I mean as you know we have a, a large proportion of international students we have uh, a large um, large very large institutions where you know to Kate's point about students feeling lost you know that that can uh, at times be the case um, and so I think it you know it would be it would be easy for students to access their services that are largely online uh, mm-hmm. but I certainly haven't um, come across uh, the public awareness or the public outcry um, in in the way that we perhaps see in the States and the United Kingdom.
3: Now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sexist past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is part 11 of the Hidden History of HE.
0: So one of the questions that arises from educating women is should they have a special curriculum for women should they be doing the same as men what's going to be happening though you have to put this in context it's very important not to take the historical things out of context and, and laugh at people in the past never want to do that um, but if, in the context of what women's careers were like well what would a what would a useful degree for women uh, look like so the king's college department of women um, has decided that it's going to explore what that might look like and it gets some benefactions from outside to set up a course to think about a useful course for for women to do. And they settled on household and social science as the model that they should, they should take forward. So they start to develop a course in this. Now this quite quickly becomes uh, quite an important part of the college and they transfer back to King's, um, the, the English and history and other kinds of subjects and leaving the college to really concentrate on household and social science. Now in its high day, you can get a proper BSc degree uh, from the University of London in household and social science in which you learn organic and physical chemistry, general biology, applied chemistry, bacteriology, household work special household work, institutional management. And the tests that come with this are just wonderful. So what you get is you get these lovely publication of exam papers. So uh, you, you get a sense of what people should be doing. So the exam paper uh, from 1921 uh, talks about uh, what, what should you do for economic biology. And the question is, give an account of the habits and life history of the itch mite. Um, write an essay on insects and disease. Uh, so you get this kind of breadth of thing. But, but what makes it clear what's going on here? is the practical exam that you get to see. So one of the things you get to do is you have a day exam. Uh, You get to uh, take the exam from uh, in the morning. You get uh, uh, 10 to one for for part one. Plan meals for a day in a middle class family for each of the seasons. Give the quantities required and compare the energy values. What principles would guide you in the choice of food? and there's a practical exam so that's just theoretical still so the practical exam 10 till 4 prepare a day's meal for a family consisting of father mother and two children using as little fuel as possible hand in the list of fresh ingredients required by 11am and calculate the price of each meal second part all utensils used are to be cleaned and left for inspection it includes the washing up it's a wonderful idea now obviously as this is you know this this is not without opposition. Uh, some years before um, there's this wonderful uh, suffragette um, publication called The Free Woman, uh, run by a woman called Dora Marsden, and and she's got a friend who's at this college um, uh, teaching uh, on this thing, and and she's quite forthright about this course uh, as you might imagine. She says the aims of those who frame such a retrograde scheme are in radical opposition to those of women who are deserving the freedom and development of women. Uh, They aim at perpetuating women's inferiority by perfecting her in the role which puts her in the greatest difficulties of her development. I protest that a more impudent piece of charlatry has never been perpetuated before in the history of education. Dora Marston goes at her. Now eventually, obviously, it wanes and it, it moves off and, it, and what comes Queen Elizabeth College goes into more normal branches of science. Uh, but for a moment, there is this wonderful BSc degree in Household and Social Science.
3: Now, this week, the Resolution Foundation has published a report titled Pick Up the Pace, The Slowdown in Education Attainment Growth and Its Widespread Effects. It's a really fascinating report. If you haven't read it, it will be linked in the show notes. Um, And this report highlights changes in educational attainment. So, Robin, what did you make of this report? Um,
4: I I thought it was a really interesting report um, because it really begins by kind of almost comparing level two, so GCSE equivalent uh, provision and attainment rates and changes there kind of right the way through to, to postgraduate study. And essentially, what it says is between 1997 and 2003, um, the kind of average increase in the share of 25 to 28-year-olds with a bachelor's degree or higher grew by grew by 1.8 percentage points. And that's kind of slowed between 2004 and 2010 to 0.7 um, percentage points, um, although with, with a maybe a little bit more great in recent times. But but it also highlights that the number of students kind of leaving education with higher than a Level 2 qualification has, has um, uh, you know, increased. So there's, you know, it's fallen by a third, effectively, those leaving with Level 2. Um, and also that um, um, the kind of, the number of people with um, uh, GCSE um, kind of a stars to C continues to drop even in in recent times by sort of 0.3 percent so essentially what it's saying is the kind of more people are gaining high level skills so level three and above um you know over, over the past few years and i think what's interesting um is is there's all sorts of kind of levers that have happened within the Department for Education that might be the result of this. So we've had the raising of the participation age, which has essentially meant that people have to stay in full-time education or on an apprenticeship or in employment until the age of 18. We've also had, um, and it's certainly kind of hit the, the sixth form and college sector and independent training provider sector harder, kind of funding rule which is known as conditions of funding so if people don't have their GCSE English Maths um, 9 to 4 or A star to C or equivalent they have to keep going and taking them which essentially raises the sort of full level 2 you know GCSE quota that people, uh, that people have and um, and there's also been kind of those initiatives around aim higher and then, you know, ANCOP and everything else that sort have of basically encouraged people to undertake a degree study. And what's quite interesting in the report, it says that some of these kind of increases in participation um, aren't there at master's level. Um, so, you know, it's kind of getting a degree therefore becomes a the new norm. And there's almost a widening participation front that sort of opens up at level seven and beyond. And then the report kind of puts this in the, the guise of Brexit, really, and says, well, if we've got, you know, a, a significant chunk of the population, I think it mentions about kind of 26%, who are working in jobs where higher-level skills, higher-level qualifications are needed, um, and we haven't kind of got access to that labour market in the future, what does that mean for the country? What does that mean for, um, uh, for kind of how we might develop skills? Um, interestingly, the, the report doesn't come up necessarily with any solutions to that but i've got one or two ideas of my own which i'm sure we can share shortly
2: yeah so i think first of all um i think we should be really proud of the fact that there are far less people coming out of the school system with no qualifications um because you know the 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 way in which the the uk economy has changed is more towards kind of knowledge-based and technical skills rather than kind of lower label uh, lower level non-skilled work um, so this this report is really helpful actually in our kind of articulating the, the need for higher level skills within our workforce um, but you're right. It's it's awkward that when you then break it down by social mobility, it doesn't seem to have made a huge impact at the higher end. Um, and so, you know, we do have a problem with um, the, the the level of education of some students at, at to masters because. Um they're, they're not getting the additional opportunities to do that either through the funding process or or through other mechanisms. And, you know, it's time to think about how InCop could maybe kind of push it further than just getting into university, but also what you do afterwards. Um, but I think the other interesting thing for me in this report was was talking about how the level of education relates to the skills needs. Um, and I don't think we've really worked out yet. Um, how employers and how wider industries can actively get involved in developing curriculums or developing content um, that's practically useful for them. Um, and, you know, there, there are so many conversations we're having at the moment around kind of technical education more generally that could really help support employers to get a better sense of the education provision available
4: well i i you know i fully agree with you and i think you know kind of running alongside but we're in an interesting landscape at the minute actually because we've got kind of ORGA running um and it was interesting that the kind of ORGA review was launched in an fe college because you know take the words out of the speech and things i think symbolically that was the kind of big thing about ORGA, and, and almost a sense of kind of redressing where and how a skill system might work and alongside all of this, of course, we've got or oh, had the DFE running the review of level 4-5. Now technical education, it was just level 4-5 education. I think as part of a response to... Kind of people knowing that productivity post crash really has dropped and hasn't really picked back up, and um, you know rather than kind of accepting that maybe as a new norm, I think people are going well. You know, actually we, we need to do something about that because that supports social mobility and that the remain and the report has it in there. Actually, great regional variations, but but and still we start to get kind of parity of esteem across level four, five, six, seven, and a parity of funding. Um, then actually, it's you know all of that's quite challenging, and I think it, it, it's difficult really because we've we've got a he system at the minute, which is which is essentially open market, kind of lots of players coming in. Um, you know, it's kind of neoliberal, I guess, in 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 that sense, and yet almost um, a sense that actually, if things were planned a bit differently and the system was set up a bit differently, actually, people being able to access level four, five, and beyond in different ways you know, might work a bit better.
2: It's another example of where um, the education sector more broadly is being blamed for some of the skill shortages in the industry. Um, and I think one of the other telling graphs in this report is that it says that the those that have lower level qualifications are far less likely to then receive further training when they're in work. And that, yeah, you know... <laughs> And that's something that, you know, we can do as education providers to provide the education need, but also employers need to pay for that as well. It can't all just be centrally funded through government pots. And I think the the, the main issue with the apprentice levy at the moment is that most employers either don't understand how to use their levy effectively, or there aren't enough standards available for them to spend their money. Um, so they're kind of caught in this trap um, where they, they can't spend what they've got. Um, so we really do need to sort that out. And also, um, I mean, we've called in the past for that to be extended outside of apprenticeships into other kind of framework qualifications uh, where that's relevant to kind of ease some of that that push at the moment. I think, look, we,
5: we really we really do have to think about the role of the employer in this. Um, the the report said, um, sorry, not this report, but, you know, we, we know them in the past the Employee Skills Survey has said that 22% of uh, vacancies have, you know, gone unfulfilled for skill-related reasons. So there is something clearly that is happening where um, employers are not getting what they want but you know my question is are they signaling what it is they want and do they demonstrate a stake in uh, curating what it is they want but also i think um it's not it's not about um you know blaming employers in the same way that we don't want um, the education sector to, to be blamed but about really encouraging the types of experiments that that do yield outcomes. Um, I'm thinking of a case study for example at the University of Birmingham who partnered with PWC to develop a I think a Bachelor of Science program but are really focused on entrepreneurship and um, digital literacy and 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 sort of you know that, that whole field and that's not that, that's that's a really key skills need we know that it's a great example of two big institutions working together um, and it, you know, adds I think real um, uh, economic, but more so social mobility value in our in our midland region. So how do we support um, and create space for more experiments like that? Now it's time for yes, but
3: does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor David
1: Kernahan. Welcome to Wonky's wonkiest and funkiest podcast segment. This week, I've set a deceptively simple question. The number of male first-degree students against the number of female first-degree students for 2017-18. For a number of years, there have been substantially more female than male students in UKHE. But how evenly are they distributed between providers? How does subject mix affect proportions?
4: Yes, but does it correlate? So... I think that the kind of first part of that is there's no correlation between providers, but I think there probably might be a correlation between the subject mix.
2: Um, I think there, there should be a correlation between the subject mix, and therefore there'll be a slight difference by providers because not all providers deliver everything and there are some specialists in the sector.
1: It does correlate, but maybe not as well as you might expect. R-squared is 0.85, and a look at the graph suggests some significant outliers. Notably, the University of the Arts first-degree population is 75% female, but Imperial College is 64% male. If you're wondering about non-binary first-degree students, the largest percentage, 2.44%, is at Coulthard Institute, whereas the largest number, 55, can be found at King's College London. I've excluded the Open University from the main plot due to its sheer size, and please note that HESA student data is rounded to the nearest five for data protection reasons. And, as always, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. See you next time.
3: And finally, this week, we have some fascinating data and projections on wonky.com about the future demand for higher education. Our friends at DataHE have put together a fascinating blog piece about rapid student number growth over the next coming years and decades. So, Minta, what does the future hold for
5: us? Rachel, so this graph shows that um, there is indeed a a demographic uh, dip that occurs um, pretty imminently. But what is very interesting is that immediately following this dip is that there is a unprecedented level of growth in the number of 18 year olds that we have um, in the UK. And so what that really uh, highlights as a question as a challenge for the higher education sector is how do we cope with this growth? So to be specific the the 5 year of 5 year rate of population growth increases reaches 17% in the mid 2020s uh, which um, and between 2020 and 2030 the population increases by 27 27%. which equates to almost an extra million 18-year-olds over this decade. So, the real question for us to grapple with is, um, are our institutions uh, prepared and poised to actually accommodate this this, uh, this growth?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting report and it's something that um, we've known for a little while, actually, we've been talking a lot in the admissions um, portion of the HE sector about how at the moment recruitment is challenging because there are less 18 year olds, but they will be coming back soon. Um, but I don't think people necessarily recognise that the level of 18 year olds that there are going to be in 10 years time. Um, and my worry is that whilst, yes, some universities can expand, yes, FE colleges can also expand and yes, we can create some new providers. Actually, all we're doing is saying, well, all of these people have to go into higher education. And there are definitely some other routes for these people to take that, um, as we were talking about earlier in the kind of review of level four and five, whether there are um, other ways to skill these people going forward. Um, But I I just don't think that all universities are going to be able to expand to this level. And also, I mean, from the perspective of HE, a lot of our members don't want to expand. But
3: isn't the real challenge that because these numbers track... Um, the kind of appetite for going to university as well so the the uh, the, the demand the, the people who want to go on to um, study at university and it's tracked against the amount of places that there will be and there's just won't be enough for the people that want to go so do we not end up in a situation where you know people whose parents may have you know gone through universities their children then do not have the same opportunities they have and and, and that's going to be
4: you know a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow right sure i I, I think but i think we're back to kind of that that sort of sense of of kind of what joined up policy you know actually looks like and you you know you almost delve into kind of what's the what's the purpose of education because you know surely some of it is a you know back to that gaining the skills and things that people need to flourish in their careers um but there's also an element of it which is about kind of, you know, supporting people to develop social skills and kind of have broader cultural experiences and and everything else. So, you, you know, there is a there is a real dilemma there, isn't there, in denying things to people. I mean, I, I think the other thing is that's kind of interesting about it. And to an extent, you know, schools have been through this and kind of Effie is going through this and universities will go through this and probably just beginning this. There was a kind of contraction of young people um, working their way through the system and... Um, And all of a sudden then you you kind of get a bit of a sort of balloon effect, don't you? So I don't know if there's a sense of actually it will feel far more strenuous on the system than it might do otherwise because of, you know, kind of where where we might be up to with numbers currently um, going through the system. I don't know.
2: And also, I think there's a, an issue at the moment around kind of the funding of education more broadly. And so, at the moment, lots of providers are contracting their provision because of the affordability of it. Um, but with this mass, rapid expansion, I think they're not going to be able to cope with, with those numbers so quickly. I was just going to say, I
5: think this, this, this piece of insight comes at a very um, politically opportune time with the auger review almost imminent, because no doubt if the panel were looking at a graph like this, they'd be asking themselves, well, how do we sustainably finance the system overall? Um, and so, um, these these are important questions to think about, not in the context of the short term, where providers might be doing you know this way or that way, but actually in the context of long long term, where if students. Um are expressing that they would like the choice to access higher education, then for their own individual growth, but also knowing what the value um, that uh, higher education presents to society, we have an obligation to provide that, don't we? And so I think, um, you know, it probably is uh, perhaps a, a little narrow to suggest that, um, you know, institutions might not scale up because they don't want to. We've got to think about what the real needs of our society are over that longer period of time um, and, and and be imaginative in, in, in how we in how we respond
2: and i think you're right the imagination needs to come not just from three year full-time undergraduate programs we need to see much more flexibility in the delivery of education so that is about it
3: for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find the links in the show notes and don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at and we will be in touch. So thanks to Kay and to Robin and to Minto and everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until next week, stay meaningful.
1: Planning for your next trip?